Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Matthew chapter 12. And uh, while you're turning, uh, don't forget that tonight is the uh, uh, first Sunday night of the month, and so we'll be having our communion service back here at 5 o'clock. Um, so you guys be back. Uh, Zach's going to be preaching, and uh, we will observe the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 12, and uh, I'm going to read again verses 22 through 32. I told you last week that today I would we'd be looking at verses 31 through 37. Uh, I was a little overzealous, as I am from time to time. We're just going to look at verses 31 and 32, but I want to read this again so we can remember the story and the context of what is being said here. So it says in verse 22, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is God's Word. You guys can have a seat. So I want to begin... Uh, just by recapping this story. I said last week, we, we spent the whole time last week just looking at the story because the story is very, very, very crucial to what Jesus is saying. And that the reason that He said it, as we'll see, the reason that He includes this teaching here is because this story is, is a, a self-evident teaching of what He is trying to get these people to understand. So, in verse 22... This man is brought to Jesus. He's possessed by a demon or some demons, demon oppressed. They've taken over his body, caused him to be blind and mute. So he can't see, couldn't have found his way to Jesus because he can't see, and he can't speak, so he couldn't cry out to Jesus or ask for help. So he is brought to Jesus, probably by some friends who care for him greatly. We talked in our small group this week about how, you know, up until this point, the demons have never been excited to be around Jesus. And those who are possessed by demons are never excited to be around Jesus. And so, there more than likely was some type of a struggle in trying to get this man to Jesus so that he could be healed. And then, by the end of verse 22, Matthew is, is very short. He doesn't go into a lot of detail. He just says, he healed him. So that he spoke and saw. So in a moment, whether he touched him, whether he said something, whether he just thought it, we don't know. But in a moment, the man is completely healed. Not subjectively, but objectively. He didn't have a sore neck. He was blind. He he couldn't speak. He was mute. And everybody around knew it. He was possessed by demons. More than likely, you know, it was obvious that this man had a problem. And in an instant, it is, again, objectively obvious that he's healed. 
That's verse 22. And then in verse 23, the crowds who were always with Jesus, always following him, watching his miracles, some of them believed in Jesus. Most of them just liked to see miracles. They just wanted to see more and more. They were, they were consistently amazed. And so in verse 23, they respond, can this be the son of David? We talked about that. But they're not making any assertions. They're just beginning to connect some dots. What Jesus is doing in His ministry is beginning to look an awful lot like what they knew the Scriptures had taught about the coming Messiah. And that was... For the Jew, son of David, was another title for the Messiah. One who would come from the line of King David. So they would watch these things and they were beginning to connect these dots. They would have known the Scriptures and they would have been thinking, you know, man, remember the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, said at my right hand, and David said that, and so the Messiah has to come from David. He'll be on David's throne, but he's also the Lord over David. And so they're connecting these things and they're wondering... This couldn't be the Messiah, could it? Is this possibly Him? And then, verse 24, the Pharisees heard it. They heard what the people were saying, and so they they respond to that. They respond to the people's response by saying, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They don't deny the miracle. We talked about that. They, They can't say that it didn't happen. They just have to attribute the power to someone else. If he's the Messiah, he's working with God's power. They don't want people to believe that. They're in a struggle for power, a struggle for for authority, and so they have to deflect the attention somehow. They're grasping at straws. Whatever they can find. We talked about this again this week. Um, if, If you're in a fight with somebody, and they're bigger than you, and they're stronger than you, and they're faster than you, and you know that they're probably going to win, when you fall to the ground, if you can find a rock or a stick or a a rod or a handful of sand or anything, you're going to use it if your life's in danger. That's what these men are doing. They're they're grasping for whatever they can get a hold of to try to deflect the attention, to to cause these people to, to not follow Jesus. They respond. So then Jesus responds to them in verse 25 and 26. He explains to them that what they're saying is, is, is not logical. If Satan put a demon in this man, then it wouldn't make any sense for him to then give me power to cast out the demon. That's, it's, it's completely irrational. Makes no sense. Verse 27, he points out that they're being inconsistent. They had their own exorcist. But they claim by the power of God could cast out demons. And so, if it's okay to say, well, those men are working under the power of God, well, why not Jesus? He's done far more miracles, far more consistent. I would imagine far more objective. They're not wondering. It's, it's obvious. It's plain to all. He's, he's healed lepers. He's raised the dead. He's calmed the storms. He's done all these things. And Jesus says, well, if they have God's power, why can't I have God's power? They're being inconsistent. And then in verse 28, he points out the, the contrasting truth. They're saying, you're working by the power of Satan, he says, shows them their irrationality. He shows them their inconsistency. And then he says, and if it is by God's power, if it is by the Spirit of God that I'm doing this, then the kingdom has come upon you. I'm the king. And and you have set yourself up against the kingdom of God. Against God's own power. In verse 29, he then goes into another reality, another, another parable, explaining to them that he has come in to, quote, plunder the goods of the, the strong man. The strong man being Satan, who has had power, who has had control, who has had authority. And Jesus is saying, I've come in, I'm binding Satan, I'm rendering him powerless here, and I am taking back what is rightfully mine. I'm establishing the kingdom of God, where up until this point the kingdom of, of Satan has ruled. And then in verse 30, one last statement of truth. There's no straddling the fence. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. There's no opportunity to not have an opinion. You say, well, I'm, I'm an apatheist. You know, I really don't care if there's a God. Sorry, that's not an option. Well, I'm agnostic. I don't know. Nobody can really know if there is a God. We can't know that. Sorry, that's not an option. 
You're either working for God or you're working against God. They're like two competing treadmills. You, the, there's no sideline. You're playing for God's team or Satan's team. You can't just sit still. So, that's the story. Now, let's think about the Pharisees for a minute and, uh, and the things that they have seen up until this point. I believe, and I think there's good evidence, uh, we, I think we can assume that, that, that in these crowds that follow Jesus all the time, there have always been somebody from the, the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees or the scribes or the lawyers, the rulers of the day, all, always, I think. But, just in case that's, you know, not enough, we'll just look at, just in Matthew, the places where we know the Pharisees have been present. The scribes and the Pharisees, where have we seen them specifically named? In Matthew chapter 3, they were there at where John was baptizing. And then Jesus comes and Jesus is baptized. And He comes up out of the water. The heavens open. God the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. And the Spirit comes down and rests on Him. They were present. In Matthew chapter 9, they were there when Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. And they, you know, they grumbled amongst themselves. Nobody can forgive sins. And to prove He does have that power, to validate His authority, He raises Him up, you know. Rise, take up your mat and leave. And he, he heals him. They saw this. In chapter 9, there was another demon-possessed man who couldn't speak. And he healed him. And he spoke. And they gave the same argument as they did here. This is by Satan's power. In chapter 12, they were there in the synagogue when the man with the withered hand was healed. Healthy. His hand restored. Healthy like the other. In a moment, it was fixed. In this story, they were there when the demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute in an instant was healed. The only reasonable response in their minds, there are two options. God's power, Satan's power. Jesus has just displayed that it is irrational and illogical to, to ascribe this power to Satan. Therefore, the only logical response is Jesus is working under the supernatural power and authority of God. It only makes sense. But they say, no, he's working with power from Satan. Now, the Pharisees, they're not, these are not dumb men. We, we, when we hear the word Pharisees, a lot of times we have different opinions and, and uh, preconceived notions of what the Pharisees were. They were a lot of things, but they were not dumb. They knew the Scriptures. These people, the Jewish people, um, just the common people would make us look pretty sorry when it comes to biblical knowledge. They knew their Scriptures. They knew their God. The Pharisees, they were the religious leaders. So these are men, although they had false interpretations, um, they still knew the Scriptures. They spent their lives studying every line of the Scriptures and memorizing these things. In John 5.39, Jesus explaining to them how the Scriptures are about Himself, He says, you search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But it is they that speak of Me. The point there is, you search the Scriptures. That was their job. That's what they did. The scribes, their job was to copy, word for word, copies of the Scriptures and make laws based on on the Scriptures. I'm going to read this story from John chapter 7. It'll be up here. You don't have to turn there. But in John chapter 7, there's more skirmishing going on about who Jesus is. And it says, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? So they're already questioning. They knew the Scriptures, so they're thinking, what did the Scriptures say about the Christ and where He's going to come from? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over Him. Some of them wanted to arrest Him, but no one laid hands on Him. You see, when it comes to discerning who the Messiah is going to be, 
These people are scripture people. Immediately. What, is it, what did the Bible say? What's, what's the verse? Is it, does he come from Galilee or does he? No, I think he comes from Bethlehem where David was, the city of David. They knew this stuff. This is common people. In verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They were Bible people. They went to the Scriptures. And when Nicodemus spoke up, they sent him back to the Scriptures. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The problem with that is, Jonah was from Galilee. There's no rule that says no prophet can come from Galilee. They are purposefully trying to deceive and twist the things that they knew better than anyone. And in John 3.10, Jesus tells Nicodemus, He says, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not know these things? Nicodemus later becomes a believer because he knew these things. The Pharisees are the most learned biblical scholars of that day, definitely, probably of all time. They have been personal eyewitnesses to the power of Jesus. So they're, they're not dumb. They knew what the Scripture says, and they knew that it, it's irrational. It doesn't make any sense to say that he's operating under the power of Satan. So in light of all that, Jesus says, verse 31, Therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. In this verse, the first thing that we want to look at is a magnificent promise that Jesus makes in light of all these truths that we've just talked about. He starts off with a magnificent promise. He says, first, therefore, so he's connecting what he's about to say to everything that has just happened in light of the situation, in light of the logic, in light of your inconsistencies, in light of what you're saying. Therefore, I tell you. Just godly authority now. Anytime Jesus says, I tell you, or, or I say unto you, or verily, verily, that means what he's about to say is really important. So he says, therefore, I tell you every sin And blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin. That is all sin. Every individual or sin from, from every kind of sin. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now blasphemy, we've talked about before, blasphemy is, is to revile someone or something, to slander to speak against something or someone. That's blasphemy. And he says it'll be forgiven. All of them. All the sins, all the blasphemies. They will be wiped away. They will be acquitted. They will be exonerated. Wiped from the slate. Every single sin. Every blasphemy. Now think about that. You go back to Genesis and you got Adam who had one rule. He broke the rule, plunged all of his race into bondage to sin, And God comes and curses him, sure. But he also tells Eve, I will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and the offspring of the serpent will bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, but the, the offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, will crush his head. By the end of that scene, God has sacrificed animals and taken their skins and covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Or Abraham, called a pagan, called out of his pagan land, says that he'll do whatever God says. He's the, the picture of justification by faith in the Old Testament. 
What does he do? Two different times when he goes into cities, he lies about who his wife is, says that she's his sister, just to cover his own back. Now what could have happened is they could have taken her, married her, made her a sex slave, a servant, whatever, killed her. They could have done anything they wanted with her and he would have been clear because he said, she's my sister. But that didn't happen because God stepped in. But think about this guy, Abraham, and the Bible calls Abraham the friend of God. The only one, it says he was the friend of God. We think about David, the, the, the epitome of sinfulness in the Old Testament. He's <clears throat> at home in the time when kings are supposed to be off at war. He's at home. Everybody else is off at battle fighting for the freedom of the people. He's at home, sees Bathsheba, uses his authority to have her brought to him, sleeps with her more than likely against her will, gets her pregnant, and then has her husband killed in battle. And David is called a man after God's own heart. An adulterer, a lazy, adulterous murderer. Man after God's own heart. Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times with curses. I do not know the man. And he was used to preach the first sermon that established the New Testament church. The Apostle Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, as, as regards the church, a persecutor of the church. Single, he, he, his authority was used to have men and women, boys and girls of the way, dragged off and imprisoned, probably beaten, more than likely killed. He had the authority. He, he commissioned those things. And God stops him in his tracks, makes him a missionary, the greatest missionary, the greatest church planner, the, the greatest Old Testament expositor that has ever lived apart from Jesus. Your sin, my sin. We think about what sin is. Sin is, is literally cosmic treason against the pure, holy, righteous, only good God who has bestowed on us blessing after blessing after blessing, day after day. We think about our friends, our families, our children, all the things that we have, countless blessings. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, down from above. He's only good. He's only ever been good. And every day we wake up and we commit cosmic treason against Him. We sin every single day. And He says, it can all be forgiven. Just, just exonerated. He says it will be forgiven. Now this doesn't mean it's, it's necessary, like He is constrained to forgive it, but it means that it most certainly can be. And I believe that of every individual sin that mankind can fathom, there has been a situation where God has forgiven it. Everything that we can think of, they can all be forgiven. They all will be forgiven, but He's not obligated. He, he just says it will. Every single sin. Think about the truth of the gospel. This is how we began last week. The truth of the gospel is, first of all, first and foremost, we get God. When we become believers, He is now our God and we are His people. The greatest promise in the entire Bible from the beginning to the end, I will be their God and they will be my people. But beneath that infinitely glorious promise and that truth and leading to that truth is this. Every single sin that you have committed has been wiped away. Cleared. That is good news for humanity. That is a magnificent promise that Jesus makes here. It, it defies... Everything that should be so. But then, in the last half of the verse, we have a horrifying threat. He says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. But, this is a contrast, there is good news, but there is also bad news, but the blasphemy, definite article, the, not a blasphemy, not some blasphemies, the blasphemy. It is a specific blasphemy. This 
sin, this unpardonable sin, is a very specific sin. The blasphemy against the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will not be forgiven. Now the next verse goes into more detail, but just just for now, this last part, this threat, remember, this is a very specific sin. It is a sin of blasphemy, that is a sin of reviling, of slander, a, a sin of speaking against something. It's a vocal sin. And, and this sin, this specific sin, is connected right back to the story we just read. Magnificent promise, horrifying threat. Verse 32, we have a specific promise. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever. All-inclusive. Anyone who falls under this category of of speaking a word, again, blasphemy, a a vocal sin, a a spoken sin, a, a sin of the speech, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man. That's Jesus. We know He's talking about Himself. The second person of the Trinity. Now again, we go back to Peter. Denied that he knew Jesus with curses. We think about the Apostle Paul. Acts says that he was breathing out threats against the church. And Jesus shows up and he says, why do you persecute me? I think it's safe to assume the Apostle Paul probably breathed out a few slanderous words against Jesus. But anyone who does this, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. These things can and will be wiped away from people. These types of sins can be cleared from the record and remembered no more. This is a more specific promise, but it is equally as majestic. You're telling me that I can speak slanderous things in my past against the Son of God and He will just forgive it? Peter, Paul, remember on the cross, at the beginning, both thieves were slandering Jesus. And we find out later that one of them, in a moment, I believe, through the power of God, looked at the other one and said, hey man, we might want to cut this out. Let's let's not do that anymore. We we are here because we deserve to be here. This man's done nothing wrong. He just, all of a sudden, he just knew this man has done nothing wrong. But up until that point, slandering the Son of God, and Jesus says, this will be forgiven. If you've done this in your past, it will will be forgiven, wiped away, off the record, remembered no more. And in the last part of verse 32, we have a specific threat. This, again, parallels verse 31 at the end. These two verses are parallel statements. He contrasts the forgiveness again, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it's all-inclusive. If you fit into this category of, of speaking against, Blasphemy, that's sin of the speech. Speaking against the Holy Spirit, anyone who is in that category will not be forgiven. This sin will not be wiped away. This sin will be left on the record. And it won't be the only sin, but even if it were the only sin you've ever committed, it's enough to send us to hell forever. This one sin, deserving eternal death, eternal hell, it will not be forgiven Specifically, either in this age or in the age to come. This age being now, this life, this this earthly life, the age to come being eternity. This is a good proof text for for the two-age theology, two-age doctrine. There is now, and then there's the age to come. Somebody says, do you believe we're living in the last days? Yes, we're living in the last days because the only other option is eternity. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. This age or the age to come. Before death or after death. This seals the time frame. There's no hope of this sin ever being forgiven. It stays on the record. In Mark chapter 3, he, he records it this way. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Forever. It never goes away. You'll pay for it forever. 
And again, Mark closes out this section by saying this, and this is very interesting. He's guilty of an eternal sin, and then Mark comes in to narrate. He says, for, for the reason Jesus said this, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The reason Jesus went into this teaching is because the Pharisees had said, they had spoke, this man has an unclean spirit. So now the situation has progressed. Jesus has performed a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The Pharisees say, this man has performed a miracle by the power of the prince of demons. Jesus then calls them out, I believe, for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I believe, and commentators vary on this, I believe they have committed this sin. That's why he's pointing it out to them. So the question then we have to answer is what is the unpardonable sin. And when you understand this story, as I've just spoken and read these verses, it begins to come very, become very clear what this sin is. The Pharisees were educated and they were eyewitnesses. In other words, they knew that Jesus was operating under the power of God. They knew it. Now it's hard for us in, in our culture it's hard for us to not to imagine that there's not a category for skepticism. Like, well, they just, they just weren't sure. In this time period, they didn't have that option. They didn't, there wasn't no skepticism. There was, it's either Satan's power or God's power, but there's some kind of power going on here. In our day, people can see something with their own eyes and say, well, I'm not sure. They, didn't, they, they, they weren't that ignorant. There were only two options. They were confronted with obvious truth, as clear as it could be, and yet they still refused to admit that Jesus was sent by God. Against all logic, against all reason, against all rational thought, against their own eyewitness testimony, against what they knew to be true, they still said, it's the power of Satan. So this is the unpardonable sin. That's what it is. It's... it's well, I'll just read these quotes and then I'll, I'll explain more because I think this says it better than I could. This is, this is what Calvin says. He sins against the Holy Spirit who, while so constrained by the power of divine truth that he cannot plead ignorance, yet deliberately resists, and that merely for the sake of resisting. He says, The spirit of blasphemy, therefore, is when a man audaciously and of set purpose rushes forth to insult His divine name, the Holy Spirit's divine name. Deliberately, against all knowledge, knew the truth and still says, no, it's, it's not. It's, it's Satan. In, uh, in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he breaks this sin down into to three different things that it must include. He says, first of all, the unpardonable sin must include a clear knowledge of who Christ is and the power of the Spirit working through Him. Clear knowledge. Remember the Pharisees. They weren't dumb. They weren't blind. They saw it. They knew. Secondly, the sin includes a willful rejection of the facts about Christ that one knows to be true. Again, remember the Pharisees. They saw it. They knew it was true. And three, this sin includes slanderously attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ to the power of Satan, which is exactly what they just did. They saw it, they had a clear knowledge, they willfully rejected it, and slanderously attributed the work to Satan. He says, in such cases, the hardness of heart would be so great that in any ordinary means of bringing a sinner to repentance would already have been rejected. Outright, deliberate, blatant, against what you know to be true, rejection of the Holy Spirit. Now, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. To another passage that I think makes this a little more clear, I believe um, is a sort of a parallel teaching on this topic that helps us understand what's happening here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For 
It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now this is often used as a proof text for the, the, the idea that you can lose your salvation. But I, I believe when you, when you read what it's saying here and you acknowledge what is not said here, I think it becomes clear. This group that the writer of Hebrews is addressing, first, they've, they've once been enlightened. This is in contrast to being blind and ignorant of any spiritual matters. These types of people may understand quite a bit of doctrine and theology. They, they may grasp good, solid theological truths. Remember the Pharisees. They were not ignorant. These people have tasted of the heavenly gift. What, what they have experienced, wherever they've experienced, is, is more than just earthly carnality. They've actually experienced some godly benefits, some godly things, whatever they might be. Heavenly gifts. It says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Notice, it does not say they have been born of the Holy Spirit or regenerated by the Holy Spirit or indwelt by the Spirit. It just says they've, they've shared. Now, if we remember what we know about the means of grace, the way that God, through the power of the Spirit, meets with us and, and conveys His grace to us. you got fellowship with believers, communion, the sacraments, communion, baptism, reading Scripture, prayer. These are ways that God's grace comes to His people. Perhaps, Paul's addressing false brothers, elsewhere mentioned in Hebrews, who are a part of the, the group that meets. They've even partaken of communion. They've even prayed. They've, they've heard the Scriptures. They've shared in these benefits of the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, there are people who have miraculous gifts that are not Christians. Remember, Balaam prophesied a word from God, but he was not a believer. He was not a follower of God. He was trying to prophesy falsely, and God wouldn't let him. He shared in this supernatural power from God. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit. The fourth thing, it says they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. That is, they've probably heard solid preaching. They've They've learned biblical truth. They've probably even gone home and put biblical truth to practice. We'll see in Matthew 13 that there is a group of people who receive the Word in the different soils, the, the rocky soil. They receive it. They take it in. They suck it up. They're excited. But whenever the sun gets hot, they fall away. They, they die because they don't have any roots. So they've tasted the goodness of the Word. They've tasted of the powers of the age to come. This perhaps could just be heavenly things. Maybe they, they understand eternal life and they want that. They understand eternal damnation and they don't want that. But in all this, it never says that they were truly converted. These types of people would have had a front row seat to the undeniable work of God. They've tasted all these things, but they've never received them for themselves and made them true and then they have fallen away. For some reason or another, they're no longer amongst this group. Or John would say in 1 John 2.19, they have gone out from us. And that proves that they were never of us. But these types of people, they can't be brought back into true repentance because, he says, they're crucifying again the Son of God. They've seen the truth. They've understood the truth of Christ. They, they maybe even grasped his, his work on our behalf on the cross, and then they reject it. And to do that is to treat it as though it's useless. It don't matter. Hey, he could be crucified again for all I care. It doesn't matter to me. They have crucified again the Son of God. So that passage, I think it makes it a little more clear that the unpardonable sin is a sin that someone commits when they have seen or experienced the true work of the Holy Spirit in some form to a point that it is undeniable to them. And yet in their pride and in their wickedness, they choose to reject it and reject His work in their lives. Now, what makes this sin unforgivable? 
Is, it, is, is God constrained by some rule outside of Himself that won't allow Him to forgive it? Is this sin just too strong? Is He powerless over this sin? Was, was the death of Christ on the cross not enough to cover this sin? No, those are all false. The, the, the unforgivableness of this sin is not a problem on God's end. It's not that He falls short or He's not powerful. It's, it's a problem on the end of the one who commits this sin. Think about what the person is doing who commits this sin. Deliberately, outright, against all logic, rejecting the Holy Spirit and calling the work of the Holy Spirit the work of Satan. When you think about the Holy Spirit... He has many jobs, many things that He does. He, he guides us into all truth. He, he illuminates the Scripture. He applies the Scripture. He applies the work of the atonement of Christ to the heart of the believer. He regenerates the believer. He exalts the risen Christ. He does many things. Unites believers to one another. The, the spirit of unity, the bond of peace. John 16, 8, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who He calls the Helper, He says... When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. One of the special jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin. To show us we are unrighteous and that there is another righteousness and that God has already judged and will judge again. So here's the the point. That, That word helper... The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. He, he comes alongside us. The picture is that we are in the courtroom of God and the Holy Spirit comes alongside us as our advocate and is whispering stuff in our ears, telling us truths. He shows us our crimes, helps us to understand that we have committed a crime. He shows us God's law, God's standard of, of perfection. And then He reveals to us what God has done so that we can be made right with Him. He's our advocate with the Father. This is the special work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. The Holy Spirit is, and this is important, this is is not a lecture on the Holy Spirit, but this is important. The Holy Spirit is the active agent in our salvation. He's the one who does it. We are Trinitarian people because we're Christians. We're Orthodox Christians. So, The Father, before the foundation of the world, elects His people. The Son, in time and space, comes into creation, lives a perfect life according to the standard of the Father, dies on the cross to pay for the sins of those God has chosen to salvation. Then the Holy Spirit comes in throughout the rest of human history and applies this work to our lives. He opens our eyes to our sin, shows us that there is one who is righteous outside of ourselves, and shows us we need that. He regenerates us. He brings us to that point, and He he gives us a new heart so that we can see these truths. Jesus made this clear in John 3 with Nicodemus. He's talking about the rebirth and how this can happen, and Jesus says, well, the Spirit of God is like the wind. Nobody knows where it comes from or where it goes. The same with the Spirit. He just... He's just blowing and He's just doing this thing. His job is rebirth. Being born again is something that happens to you, not something you do. And this is the job of the Holy Spirit. So to reject the Holy Spirit, to reject the the outward visible signs of the Holy Spirit or or to even reject some of the inner workings in, in your heart of the Holy Spirit is to reject the One who would bring you to salvation who would help you to see these truths. So listen to this. If, when the Holy Spirit comes, in obvious power, in such a way that cannot be denied, and you are made aware of the truth of your sin, that you need a Savior, and that God has provided this righteousness, and you reject that work, and you slander Him, attributing His work to the devil, you have willfully spurned the one who would have caused your regeneration. You've rejected the one who would lead you to repentance. Removing repentance as an option for you. So this sin must be an obvious and willful rejection 
of God's work. Calvin says again, those who are convinced, convinced in conscience that what they repudiate and impugn is the Word of God, they're convinced, and yet cease not to impugn it, are said to blaspheme the Spirit, inasmuch as they struggle against the illumination which is the work of the Spirit. So the Spirit's job is to help us see that we need a Savior. So if you reject the Spirit, there's no one left to help you see. Now, who is going to commit this sin? I want to talk about who's least likely and who's most likely. Who's least likely to commit the unforgivable sin? Well, those unacquainted with Christianity are not likely to commit this sin. Unreached people groups, people ignorant of Christian doctrine, they're not going to commit the unforgivable sin. Those of other world religions, those who persecute Christians, they are not likely to be guilty of the unpardonable sin. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, you name them. People who kill Christians. It's not unforgivable. Those who we might consider the most heinous of sinners, adulterers, killers, abortionists, terrorists, they're not likely to commit this sin. Who would be most likely to commit such a sin? Those in direct contact with Christian faith and those who adhere to the Christian faith. Friends, family members of Christians, co-workers of Christians who have heard the gospel. Those in direct contact with the church or a church where where the Holy Spirit is, is working, is strong and evident in power. That is... We would call this the visible church. Those who are close to the body, maybe profess to be Christians, maybe profess certain things, believe certain things, they're around the church. Often, they are the most likely to commit this sin. Those well-versed in theology and doctrine. Again, remember the Pharisees. That's who Jesus is speaking to here. They were the most understanding. They knew too much for their own good. That's the type of people who would commit this sin. Because this sin can only be committed by those who are fully aware, beyond a reasonable doubt, what the truth of the gospel is. Now that is a warning to us. Because we're here. We're not out there. We know the truth. Remember that passage that we read in Hebrews. It was written to the church. Visible and invisible. Those who are truly believers and those who were just mixed in with those. There's always tares among the wheat. There are always goats mixed in with the sheep. These things will be separated on judgment day, but until then, there is a visible and invisible church. These people are often false professors of the faith. They get so close to the work of the Spirit and yet they reject it. And when we understand that, we understand that we need to guard our hearts. Sanctification, this process that we are on, being made like Christ, is synergistic. It takes two. Conversion, regeneration, being born again, that's a monergistic work. God does it to you. Sanctification takes two. God does it and you work alongside with Him. And so we must guard ourselves and persevere. God has promised to preserve His own, and He has also exhorted us to persevere. It's both and. And so we must be guarding ourselves. And I believe one of the best ways to guard ourselves is this. Remember last week I talked about Pharaoh. He he saw all these things. He knew the truth. But he wouldn't humble himself. And Moses even asked him, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? The Pharisees. They're in a power struggle. They know the truth, but they will not humble themselves. The best way to guard against this sin is constant practice and habitual humility. Work to stay humble. Submit to God's glory above your own at all costs. No matter what. Make a practice of it. Don't make a habit of taking personal stands against questionable theological matters. See, if it's gray and we get used to saying, no, I'm doing this because I want to. 
No, I, get used, I, I do this because I want to. We get used to that. Then when something becomes black and white, we're so used to it that we still say, no, I'm doing this because I want to. And we need to make a practice of being humble, especially in areas that we're not clear of or, or gray. Stay humble. And that way when matters are black and white, we are practiced in humility. So stay humble. Seek God's glory. <coughs> so, have you committed this sin? Have you committed the unpardonable sin? Throughout history, people have been plagued with this thought. Depressed for their lives because they fear they've committed this sin. They think there's no hope for them. They've, they've, just, they've lost all hope. There's no way of salvation. If you think that, if you fear that you have committed this sin, and you're afraid that God will not forgive you, you haven't committed it. Because people who commit this sin reject the one who would convict them of the sin, can't be convicted of it. They're not going to care. So if you care and you're afraid, you've not committed this sin. This is outright, outright willful rejection. But when someone does commit this sin, and reject the Holy Spirit, they also reject Jesus. Remember Hebrews 6, you crucify again the Son of God. See, to reject Jesus, to reject salvation, to reject the gospel, is not to reject the Holy Spirit. I would venture to say most of us rejected the gospel at least once before we were saved. To reject Jesus is not to reject the Holy Spirit and slander the Holy Spirit, but to slander the Holy Spirit and reject His work is to ultimately reject Christ and His work of salvation. And Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? When you know it to be true, why? Would you reject it? How shall we escape if we do that? So, if you feel the Holy Spirit gripping your heart, if you feel Him working in your heart, don't reject it. Don't put it off. Don't try to suppress it. Yield to the Spirit. Allow Him to work in your heart. If you feel conviction of sin, don't put it aside. Don't try to overcome conviction of sin. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict you and to break you and make you contrite. Let that work happen. That's what He does. He brings you to repentance. If you see the need for the, the righteousness that's offered in Christ, don't neglect it. Hunger for it. Run after it. Beg for it. Search it out. If you realize God has judged, God has set forth a plan of salvation, don't reject it. Don't try to make up another plan. Give yourself to the mercy of the court, the mercy of the judge. Listen to the whispering in your ear of your advocate, your paraclete, as he tells you, you're a sinner. You need to be saved. You need to be redeemed. There is judgment, but there is also righteousness. Cling to the righteousness. Listen to the Spirit. And then in closing... You might be thinking, whew, that's close. <laughs> I didn't commit it. I haven't committed it, so I'm good. No, that's not true. Not committing this sin is not a testimony to salvation. Not committing this sin is a testimony that forgiveness is still offered. That doesn't mean you're saved. That means it's still there. There's still room for the Spirit to work. If you will trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray.